Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. Probably the greatest work of art that was ever created by human hands is Michelangelo's David. Um, But the crazy thing about that piece of work is that the marble that it was carved out of was originally intended for somebody else to use. It was another artist who was originally commissioned to make David. And at that time, there was a lot of people, like Bible scenes were a popular thing because the church had so much power in Rome. And so they were commissioning these artists to make these amazing pieces of art. So there were paintings and sculptures. And this guy was commissioned to do it. But the problem was when they went to the quarry to cut this slab of marble, it was, they, they messed up. And the guy just, they, they weren't thinking. And they made, they cut the slab too long and narrow. And he worked on it for a little while and then got frustrated and just quit and said, I can't, I can't do it. I think I screwed this piece of marble up. This is like, an incredibly expensive slab of marble. I mean, it was, David is two stories high. It's not like a six-foot thing. It's, it's like 17 feet high. So it's huge. And this guy just was like so depressed that he couldn't figure out what to do with it because he bored a hole in a really awkward place so that it was, it was lighter to transport. And it was just really weird, this hole in it. It, was just, it wasn't going to work out, so he quit. So another artist tried it, and he quit. And it ended up sitting for like... 30 years or 25 years or something in the back, some courtyard in Rome, and nobody knew what to do with it. And then, and then someone had the idea to commission Michelangelo, who was 26 years old when he created David, this masterpiece, which is, makes it that much more amazing. But he's looking at the slab of marble, and he's, it helped inform the way that he wanted to depict David. Because this hole was bored in a weird place, because it was a long and narrow slab of marble. He had to be innovative. And he decided that he was going to go against the trend. Everybody else was depicting David after he had defeated Goliath. So he's like holding Goliath's head. Um, He's in some victory pose. But he decided he was going to capture the moment that David was walking up to Goliath. And he wanted to capture the moment that David caught Goliath's eye. And so he, had to, he did that because he had to make his feet in a weird stance, an awkward stance that wasn't normal for sculptures back then, but it was because of the weird place they put the, the hole. And so he's looking at Goliath like this, in this with this intense, fierce, confident look. And he's holding the sling over his shoulder, and it is absolutely masterful the greatest work of art ever produced by human hands, I think, all because of a mistake, all because they cut the slab of marble wrong, all because they were careless in trying to make it more um, transportable, lighter. And out of all those mistakes came something incredibly beautiful. It's not hard to connect the metaphor for us, and that is that God does the same thing in our lives. 
You know, we're all damaged goods when it comes to our emotions. Nobody has escaped life without somehow damaging our emotions, without some type of trauma in our life. And yet, we become someone far more beautiful than we would have been had those things never happened to us. Because God has a way of taking things that have been absolutely destroyed and making them more beautiful than they would have ever been at the beginning. Like the new creation, when Jesus comes back, the new earth is actually going to be more beautiful than the Garden of Eden. It's described as a, a city garden, a garden city, because now there's trees and there's architecture, according to Revelation. And it's think about volcanoes. They're, the power to destroy everything. I just read this in a book this week. The volcanoes have the power to destroy everything, and they wreak havoc on the earth. And yet, give it several decades, and the most beautiful flowers come up in a, through the lava because of how fertile the soil gets from the lava. God does that in our lives. He takes all the mistakes that we've made, that people have made against us, and he makes them more beautiful than we would have been had those never happened. We're going through the series Emotionally Healthy Discipleship by... Peter Scazzaro, and next week we're going to start walking chapter by chapter um, through that book. But for now, what we're doing is just, I'm giving a little bit of an introduction, so we're not following the book these last week and this week. It's just a little bit of an introduction to this, because I want us to understand how important this part of our lives is. God wants to mature every aspect of our humanity. There isn't a part of your life that God wants to leave untouched by his grace, so whatever makes us human, all of us, our intellect, our emotions, physically, everything, he wants to use every aspect of our humanity and conform us more and more into the image of Christ. There's not one aspect of who you are that God didn't redeem at the cross. Your total self has been redeemed in Christ. Last week we talked about the gospel of Jesus electrifies us. This week we're going to talk about the gospel of Jesus regulates our emotions. Now, I want us to think of emotional regulation in a way that's probably not typical. It's not like a good clinical definition. I think clinically, um, emotional regulation is about making sure that the intensity of your emotions doesn't harm you or other people. So maybe if we're just talking about it in a clinical way, Someone who is very anger, who struggles with rage, becomes calmer. Their emotions become less intense. They control them less and less. And in some sense, that's good and true. But I'm talking about something a little bit more different for us as disciples of Jesus. What I'm talking about is living more and more consistently at the baseline norm for a disciple of Jesus when it comes to our emotions, and that is love. Now, I understand that love is a verb, it's something that you do. Like if, if um, someone comes up to me and they're requesting marriage counseling and they say, I, I just don't have any feelings for him anymore, I don't love her anymore, um, you know, the affection isn't there, the feelings just aren't there, I say, what do feelings have to do with it? Because in one sense, love is a verb. But in another sense, love is also an emotion. 
And it's actually the baseline emotion from which we are to live our lives. And the way that we get there is resting in God's love. Because we need a love that's stronger and more consistent than our own. And the way that we receive that is we get it from God so that we can share his love with others. That's what makes us more gentle. That's what makes us more patient. That's what makes us more kind. When we are filled and used to sitting in the acceptance and love of God, it just makes us gentler towards others. Uh, if you would like to, if you're brave, you can turn to Zephaniah right now. There's going to be a few passages that we turn to, and then we're going to eventually land, land in Psalm 42. And, and while you're struggling and embarrassingly looking for Zephaniah, because it's a tough one to find, it's in the Old Testament, there is no shame in putting a bookmark in the index of your Bible. I wish someone would have told me, because I was always so embarrassed, I was like, I'll open it if I find, if, it, if it's an easy one. Like, if it's John, that's how I was in church growing up. If it's the book of John... Boom, I'm ready, I got my Bible, but if they say like Zechariah or Zephaniah or something like that, I'm probably just going to listen to that one. There's no shame with putting a bookmark in your index and just looking it up where it is and going to that page number. Zephaniah 3.17, and this is a verse that if we would just, if we just believed one verse in the Bible, this would change us. This, if we actually at a gut, visceral level believed that this verse is true, it would change us. And that's how it is with most things, isn't it, being a follower of Jesus? Like, it's one thing to believe something and say we believe something and pass a test about theology and what we believe about God, but it is so hard to actually reimagine our lives in based on what we believe is true. To live like you believe these things is a whole different animal. But if you could somehow, by God's grace, get there with this verse, you're It'd be a game changer. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. That's how God feels about you. That's, a, that's one of the clearest and most potent verses in the Bible describing how God the Father feels about those who are in his family in Christ. And how would your life be different if you really, really believed that? That the Lord your God is in your midst, that he's not off in heaven, that somehow he's able to be everywhere that the Spirit of God is here with us, that He's in your midst, that He's present, He's not absent, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness, that He's glad about you. He's crazy about you. He will quiet you by His love, and we're going to riff on what that means a little bit more in a moment. He will exalt over you with loud singing. How many of you, if you have kids, you've ever bragged about your kids? You've ever rejoiced in your kids? And it doesn't matter if they're like rebelling or it doesn't, how they're behaving doesn't actually matter all that much. That's your kid and you love them and you're crazy about them. That's how God feels about us. How would your life be different right now if you believe God's not mad at you and God's crazy about you? Just convincing someone that God's not mad at them goes a long way because most of us think that 
What does it mean by he will quiet you by his love? Imagine a life in which you never feel the need to prove yourself. Seriously, that's the potential. Imagine a life in which you never felt the need to prove yourself. Have you ever been in a room with someone like that? Everyone else in the room is clamoring. And this person's just sitting quietly. Doesn't need to be at the center of attention. Doesn't need to show why he or she is worthy to be in the room. They're just quiet, confident. They're a mystery to everybody else. Because we're trained in this world to believe that we constantly need to prove our relevance. We need people to, prove, to, to know that we are relevant for some reason in this world. So we're, you know, we're trying to convince the world that we're, we're here for a reason and that the world needs us. I've used this line before, but it's such a great line from A Few Good Men, Tom Cruise, Demi Moore. They're these hotshot lawyers. Tom Cruise is, at least. Demi Moore is just trying to be on the team. She's trying to convince him to take this case. And and he says to her one time, he says, why are you always giving me your resume? <laughs> and she says, because I want you to think that I'm good. Well, that pretty much describes the human condition. We're constantly giving each other and we're constantly giving God our resume. What would it be like to not have to do that? A person who is quieted by the love of the Father has a gentle and quiet demeanor. And there's two passages that describe this particularly well, I think, in the, in the New Testament. And you can stay in Zephaniah 3.17 because that's where the line, he will quiet you by his love is. But you can also write this down if you want. It's 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4. And this one describes what it might look like for, Peter's talking about women, what it might look like for a woman to be quieted by the love of God. It says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Everything else gets old and breaks down and becomes less beautiful. But an inner world that has been quieted by the love of Jesus grows more and more beautiful. Now, if you think about our culture, does it, does it emphasize growing more and more beautiful internally for women? Or does it emphasize doing everything you can to keep looking younger, to maintain the beauty of youth. And there's nothing wrong with, he, he, does, he is not saying that women should not wear makeup. That's not the point at all. There's nothing wrong with taking care of yourself at all. It's just that we should be more concerned with what's happening internally. Are we people who are being more and more quieted by God's love? And then he's, Paul speaks to men in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. For women, sometimes there's an over-desire to, to maintain and to keep beauty. For men, it comes, where do you think it happens? There's an over-desire to gain our reputation, to prove ourselves to the world through work. So what does it look like to be quieted by the Spirit of God in that area? 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12. 
describes this. And to aspire to live quietly. He's, he's describing a life well lived by a man. To aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. God says, yeah, there's work to do. It Go about your work. Don't use your work to add value to your life. You add value to work because of who you are. You're quieted by God's love. You don't need this to prove yourself. It's, um, it's a temptation for pastors, for a church to be their idols. It's a temptation for pastors to feel like they're going to have a better week if more people were there on Sunday. To feel like I'm not upsetting or hurting or offending anybody with what I'm saying up here. So sometimes pastors get caught up in that temptation and they try to do everything they can to not be offensive. You know, when they're speaking, they're not vulnerable about sharing their own struggles because the truth is we're all on the, in this together. We're all on the same plane. There isn't a super Christian in here. The way to be freed from that insanity is to trust that Jesus loves me for no good reason. And so I don't need to prove him. I don't need to prove myself to anybody. That is the potential of being quieted by the love of Jesus. Tim Keller actually describes this in probably the sermon I've listened to more than any other sermon, the best sermon I've ever listened to because it hits me so directly and I've probably listened to it a hundred times. It's the blessed rest of self-forgetfulness. He made it into a little book, actually, but he, he gives this, he says in that sermon, he says, here's the potential of self-forgetfulness, which comes by resting in God's love for you. Here's the potential. It's for the person competing in the Olympics, the ice skater, to see the person who's gonna win the gold, who just beats her with a move, who's ice skating and does this like triple axle something or other that's just absolutely amazing. The potential of resting in God's love is for the, the second or the third place, the silver or the, the, the bronze medalist to stand up and cheer louder than anybody else because they appreciate how beautiful that was and to not have any concern about how it affects them. That's the potential of resting in Jesus' love. That's where God's leading us with regulated emotions how do we get there? All right, you can open your Bibles to Psalm 42. That one's really easy to find. It's like in the middle, and there's 150 chapters, so it's big. If you get to Proverbs, just go a little bit before it. Psalm 42. And we're going to look at just the first five verses, because I think this gives us some helpful instructions on how to regulate our emotions. David was in a pickle. He was in a tough spot. Now, we're not sure exactly which one it was, but either he was, he was ousted from the kingdom by his son Absalom, which isn't great, or he was hiding from King Saul, who was trying to kill him. We don't know when, where, how, uh, what the circumstance was that he wrote this, but either way, he was, in a pretty, he was in pretty dire circumstances, pretty emotionally devastated, pretty in need of his emotions being regulated by God. So here's where he goes. Psalm 42, 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, 
So pants my soul for you, O God. Now Samuel says that David was a man after God's own heart. And even he was feeling dry. Even he was going through a rough patch, a dry patch in his life. And he was a man after God's own heart. Emotional regulation for a disciple of Jesus means that you don't need the highs. You don't need to come up and get, you know, come to church and get pumped up. You don't need to have all these deep feelings for God. Because sometimes life just isn't that way. And we don't need to get amped up on Sundays and limp from Sunday to Sunday while we kind of lose our momentum and emotion for God during the week and then come back and pump me up again, animate me again, capture my heart again. I mean, th those will happen in different times and sometimes they won't. Sometimes you'll just feel dry. And maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a long time and you just go through these stretches like David where you're like, yeah, I'm panting for flowing streams. My soul pants for you, I'm pretty dry here. I'm not feeling it. It's okay. What about verse 2? My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The NIV says, when can I go and meet with God? Remember, he was on the run when he wrote this. So he wasn't able to go to Jerusalem and go, go to the temple. Or the sanctuary, I should say. He wasn't able to meet with God. Now, the sanctuary was the, the meeting place where God agreed to meet with humanity. It's a little different now in the New Testament. We don't come to church to meet with God because he, he lives in us and he's with us. But David wasn't allowed to go to the sanctuary. Uh, Charles Spurgeon makes an important point about this, this verse. He says, notice what David longed for for comfort. He missed church. He missed being with his people. He didn't long for his palace. His palace was made from um, cedar wood from Lebanon. It was like the most luxurious wood on earth. And it was a gorgeous palace. And he had people that served his every need. And it was comfortable. And it was safe. But he didn't long for his palace. It wasn't his country that he longed to get back to. Spurgeon says, David was a prince of patriots, super loved, super respected, super admired. He was a war hero. He killed Goliath, the lilies of the valley. He could go anywhere in Jerusalem and enjoy the beauty of the country. He could rule it with grace and with humility and be loved and respected. He was a king, but that's not what he missed. And it wasn't even his family that he longed for. It was God. I think the lesson for us in this is that different things in life bring us different degrees of comfort. I love my motorcycle and I love riding my motorcycle and kind of in a way it's a type of therapy for me to just, especially in this weather, are you kidding me? I love just getting on the motorcycle and, and getting out there and riding for no good reason. But what am I going to do if tragedy strikes my life? How much is my motorcycle going to comfort me? What am I going to sit in my garage and cuddle with my motorcycle? <laughs> Inanimate objects can only go so far in bringing us comfort. They're fun when things are good. But when life hits the fan, 
they don't do a lot to comfort us. You know how many NFL players have sold their Super Bowl rings? They spend their entire life trying to get one of those, and very few get one. And you can buy it on eBay. You could probably look it up today and buy one on eBay. <laughs> Inanimate objects only go so far in comforting us. What about animals? Now, I think certain animals are more comforting than others. A deer is not going to provide a whole lot of comfort. They're going to scatter from you when you try to go near them. Uh, skunks not going to provide a whole lot of comfort. Squirrels aren't going to provide a whole lot of comfort. But some animals provide some comfort. When I go home today, there's going to be three dogs that think I'm the best person in the world, and they've been waiting for years just to show me how much they love me. Cats might provide a little bit of comfort for some of us more than others. Cat lovers, but dogs are where it's at. They love you. They, I mean, they just, and especially Stanley. Stanley is like the OG of dogs that will comfort you. He's like, he's the best, it's the best feeling in the world coming home and all three dogs jump on me and just want me to love on them. But if someone I love gets hit by a bus, their comfort's gonna be pretty limited, you know? That's why in Genesis 2, Adam had every animal in the world with him. And God said it's not good that he's alone. It's the first time in the creation that God says something isn't good. He had all the animals in the world with him, and they were all tame. And God said that's not good. He needs a helper suitable for him, which brings us to people. A little bit higher degree of comfort, relationships. We're getting there, but even this is limited, isn't it? I mean, we get to a place in our grief where others can't go with us. We have to go it alone. And I think we feel this most acutely when we're the ones trying to comfort someone else. You feel like there's this invisible wall. You are hurting. Your life is falling apart. And I'm beside you, and I can't, I can't go with you all the way. I can't feel this the way that you feel this. I see this every time I conduct a, a funeral. You see people trying to figure out how to be a little bit more comfortable or, or comforting, and they say things that just aren't helpful, and you feel it. And at that point, you can just sit with someone and cry with them and hurt with them and grieve with them instead of trying to fix it. But even people can only go so far in comforting one another. David knew that the only inexhaustible, unending, always present source of comfort was God. Which is why I think to get to a place of real maturity with our emotions is to be able to sit in a room alone with God for hours and be comforted by that, to be stilled by his love. It's about getting to a place in life where you genuinely believe that give me the Lord and I don't need anything else. Give me God and you can have everything else. Verse three, my tears have been my food day and night. He's been so so damaged and so much pain over the situation that he can't eat, he eats his own tears, and it's day and night, he doesn't sleep. While they say to me all the day long, where's your God? People are mocking him, people are mocking God. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise a multitude-keeping festival. See, this is where 
he remembers going to worship God with his people. So a little bit greater degree of comfort is when you're sitting with people and Christ is at the center of both of your lives. You can be comforted by ways, uh, by each other in deeper ways than people that might not be interested in having Christ at the center of their life. He remembers going to church and he misses it, but I, wanna, I want you to pay attention to the one line in verse four, the second line, as I pour out my soul, as I pour out my soul. Matt Boyers, who's the, the pastor that I was mentored by for a long stretch when we planted, I'd get with him once a month and he used to say, you know, pouring out your soul is a lost art. Nobody does it anymore. But the way that you get recentered in the love of God is by pouring out your soul. And sometimes you just need to go on long walks and give God the list of things that are grieving you, the list of things that are stressing you, the list of things that are causing pain or suffering in your life or somewhere else. Because where else are you going to go? Because who else can do something about it? And the way that we get recentered in Christ's love, the way that we get to a place of resting in his love is this practice of pouring out our soul to God whenever necessary. When you are not at rest in the love of Jesus, the number one priority in your life at that moment is to get back there. Because every decision you make from a place where you are not at rest in his love is gonna be a mistake. And you're gonna hurt yourself and you're hurt others. The normal baseline life for a disciple of Jesus needs to get to the place, this is emotional maturity, where we are completely at rest in the love of Jesus and not needing anything else in our life to go right. That is high level following Jesus. But that's what he's drawing us to. And pouring out our souls is one of the tools to help us get there. And that is a very practical thing where you get alone with nobody else and you pray out loud, you talk out loud, you say to God, I'm in a lot of pain right now and nobody can do anything about it but you, so I'm gonna tell you about it. Peter says, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Pour out your soul to him. Verse five, why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. I'm going to break 17 rules of preaching right now, because you are definitely not supposed to do what I'm about to do. You're supposed to, when you read a quote in preaching, it's supposed to be like a couple lines, like 10 seconds. You are never supposed to read longer than that, but I'm going to read you two paragraphs. And it's okay, I feel like, because it's at the end of the sermon, but I want you guys to listen to this. And this is in your bulletin. This is from a great book. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. It's a fantastic book. It's kind of hard to read because the guy is so brilliant, but it's a really good book if you struggle with what he calls spiritual depression. It's this idea that we're supposed to talk to ourselves. We're not just supposed to be led around by overpowering emotions. We are supposed to regulate our emotions by reminding us what's true about God. That's what verse 5 is all about. So I want to read you these two paragraphs by Martin Lloyd-Jones. And then we'll, we'll wrap it up. 
Follow along in your, in your bulletin if you'd like to, or else just listen and really try to stay with it. The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this. That we, are, we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul had been repressing him crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Do you know what I mean? If you do not, you have but little experience. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do, then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. Emotional regulation is learning to rest in God's love in a way that frees you from performing for others, proving your relevance to others, being devastated by the things that are happening to you. Because at the end of the day, when you rest in God's love, you have it forever, and nothing will ever separate you from that. And this is an area of my life that I am really being pressed into by the Father. Um, this week I met with my spiritual director. We do a Zoom call, call every month. And I'm starting to learn that a lot of the things that I say and a lot of the things that I do and a lot of the ways that I preach and a lot of the ways that I lead and a lot of the ways that I father and husband 
are not informed by the love of God because I'm not doing it out of a place of rest in his love. And until I get there, then most of the things that I do there are gonna be unhelpful. And that's not a false humility. That's the truth for all of us. Get centered in his love. Begin believing what scripture says. Don't believe your own feelings and your own thoughts. Believe what he says is true. He's more right than you. He's more right than me. All right. So we're going to not make this awkward and extend it too long, but I'm, I'm going to start leaving a minute or two for questions or other thoughts that you would like to, to add to this. If there's any questions, we'll just take a couple seconds here and you can raise your hand and you can, you can ask a question. I like this because it forces Alex and I to be honest. It'd be real easy just to prepare a teaching and pretend that we've got this and sound really smart, but to be put on the spot and asked a question could make things interesting, and I like that. So if you have a question, shoot, and Alex will answer it. <laughs> All right, let's pray. We're going to keep doing that. Well, Father, um, thank you that there is actually a deep faith rest walk that we can experience with you. Thank you that Christianity is, is not just you know, a, a thing that we do on Sunday mornings, or it's not just something that we profess to believe. It's not just, right? we, we actually mean this. We actually believe that we can get to a place where we can rest in your love and cease to do what everybody else seems bent on doing, proving our relevance to the world. And somehow, when we rest in your love and cease from trying to prove ourselves, we actually become more fruitful, more transformational. There's something not just about what we do, but about who we are that impacts people. Father, get us there as a church. Help us there, lead us there. Be tender, be nice, be gentle, be kind like you always are. But show us where we're resisting your love or where we're not resting your love, where we're not believing your love. And lead us home. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.